0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Boucher, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will discuss the latest in Congress with AAF's Douglas Holtzagen. Doug, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, as always. Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, this is episode 86. We're hitting close to 100 here.
1: And what happens then?
0: I don't know. I think it's a milestone that some people celebrate. So I feel like we have to do something for it, right?
1: Uh, I thought maybe I won a prize or something. I mean, who knows? <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll have to figure it out. But let's jump right into things. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, before we talk about the latest in the reconciliation package, which everyone seems to be talking about, uh, let's talk about the big showdown that will play out over the next week or so. The clock is ticking on a, two critical deadlines namely the debt limit and the end of the fiscal year. It seems like this story continues on and on and on forever. And so this is episode maybe 86 of this again. (laughs) Earlier this week, the House passed legislation to keep the government funded through early December and lift the debt limit through 2022. Um, Will this get through the Senate or are we facing a government shutdown and maybe far worse, a potential default on our loans?
1: So so here's the... The lay of the land. Um, the government funding goes through September 30th, at which point, uh, at the end of the fiscal year, we, there has to be some sort of funding bill in place. The debt can be managed to somewhere that looks like the third week in October at the moment, so then, then the X date um, arrives. And so the, the first thing that has to get done is funding the government. The second thing that's to get done is either to raise or suspend the debt limit. So uh, let's start with the debt limit. Uh, at the moment, there's simply a game of chicken on the debt limit. Um, Republicans have said they will not vote for a debt limit uh, increase or suspension, uh, that the Democrats have the votes to do it because they control the House and the Senate and they can use reconciliation. So they should just do that. The Democrats have said, no, we don't want to do that. We want Republicans to, to do it in regular order. And the reason it's come down to this is that if you do the debt limit and reconciliation. Number one, you have to revise the budget resolution and have a reconciliation bill, a standalone for the debt limit. And that takes time, probably about two weeks and involves lots of votes that Democrats don't really wanna take. And most importantly, you cannot suspend the debt limit in reconciliation. You have to specify a number. You have to say, the limit on the federal debt is going to be $30 trillion or whatever it may be. and. Republicans very much want them to have to do that so that they can use that in the midterm elections. And Democrats have openly said they don't want to have to do that. So we're at this impasse. If They do it in regular order. They can just suspend it, not mention a number. Everyone knows this has to happen. No one disputes the fact it has to happen. We're at the moment of just pure politics um, where each is trying to get a political advantage and, and claiming they have the moral high ground as well. I think realistically, you um, we're not yet close enough to the X date for the stakes to to be high enough to, to get to resolution. So, what the Democrats did was they attached the debt limit, about which there is just at the moment no agreement, to this this funding bill deliberately to make sure that the Republicans vote it down in the Senate and can make the finger pointing can begin, and the Republicans will vote it down in the Senate and the finger pointing will begin. Then um, they will separate the issues at, and and they'll get a funding bill. No one wants to close the government. Uh, they'll do a, a short-term CR for some duration, avoid the shutdown, and go back to fighting about the debt limit, and and there, uh, the, that'll be a separate issue post-October 1st, but the government will be open.
0: Gotcha. It seems like we have a week to lo- watch this play out, but let's for a moment think about the worst-case scenario, fast-forward a week, they don't do what you just said, they don't fund the government, we get closer to def- to the debt limit and defaulting on our loans. What happens if they fail to pass anything for a week or
1: even for a month? Uh, if they fail to pass anything, then the we'll get get into a government shutdown. And um, we know that we've we've seen these shutdowns before. It means that uh, you shut down the most visible things first to make sure the public is well aware that it's shut. So the Washington Monument gets closed uh, in a heartbeat. but essential employees and and each agency has to develop a list of essential employees. And they will continue to work Uh, and uh, they will work without pay because there is there is no money, but they'll be made whole after the fact. So there there will be uh, a serious uh, disruption of retail consumer activities of the federal government, whether it's uh, parks, all the parks, national parks will close, things like that. But the essential things like getting out Social Security checks and the like will continue. If we go for. Ah, uh, full thirty days. Then you're into the territory that uh, we run out of room to manage the debt and run up against the limit, uh, and that is the is the the real catastrophe that no one wants to contemplate. Uh, there would be a moment when someone would, would come with their treasury and say, "Time to redeem this for me," and there wouldn't be any money available to do it, and the U.S. would be in default on on a treasury. A serious default uh, would would shake global financial markets in a in a very significant way. And and since we've never had a we've got a technical default once back in like 1979, but you know we've never had a real default on uh, on Treasuries. No one really knows the magnitudes, but it's one of those things you don't want to learn. And so um, you know that you can't go till November first, and they shouldn't, and they won't.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine it's a good thing to have this all happen with the pandemic economy is still happening as well.
1: No, it, it would be uh, it would be terrible in, in any circumstances. And and we've had enough disruption in the US economy. We certainly don't need that. Yeah. One of the remarkable things about the economy during the pandemic is we've seen real disruptions of uh, the the provision of goods and especially services. You know, The leisure and hospitality sector flat on its back for a long period. Um, but financial markets have by and large functioned quite well. And so you would take the one good news part of this story and then damage it. That that's really unwise.
0: Not, not, not anything we want to see happen. So another deadline that's coming up, uh, the, the weather today on my commute to work has me thinking about this. I'm sure people down in Louisiana and, in, that are dealing with this are also thinking about this, the national flood insurance program is back. I know it's one of your favorites to talk about, might not be getting the same media attention, but what's happening
1: here? So we, we have a, a national flood insurance program. It's a backstop uh, to commercial insurance and and offers policies in, in places where commercial uh insurers simply won't touch. So if you're you know on a barrier island, uh, you know, you're you're essentially uninsurable from a commercial point of view. The national flood insurance programs covering those kinds of people. It's in chronically bad financial shape because it underprices the insurance, right? The risks are greater, we have people. Who are, have houses in floodplains and businesses in floodplains, and they're always getting flooded. And so they, they should be paying much more for their insurance to make it actuarially fair. And they're, and they're not. So it's, it's in financial trouble. It's also running out of legal authorization to operate on September 30th. So there will have to be a reauthorization. Uh, that, that I think is a, a no brainer. People will attach that to something. It will also need more money. Uh, because it is uh, running out of reserves, we have lots of claims that are going to come out of the the Hurricane Ida, and um, they'll they'll have to have more money. Normally, that's a bit of a fight, but in this environment with so many big dollar things floating around, it's going to look like chump change. And so, I, I don't think it's going to turn out to be politically much of a, a deal, but. Substantively, it is one of those programs that really does need to get fixed.
0: Well, hopefully we'll we'll see some action on it. I know you like to talk about it, but uh, another topic, another deadline coming up, and it certainly seems like we've been talking about this forever. Uh, Infrastructure Week is still happening uh, (laughs) for the last two years, but let's review the latest on the infrastructure bill. Speaker Pelosi laid down another deadline of September 27th for a House vote on this but it certainly seems like she's backing off of that. Uh, She's under pressure from progressive Democrats in both the House and the Senate to back off that deadline. Has there been any movement on these negotiations from a month or so ago with moderate Democrats wanting one thing, progressives wanting another thing? Where does this all stand?
1: Well, the progressives essentially want to hold the speaker, and uh, the president also said this, uh, to the notion that you you don't pass the the infrastructure bill until you've passed the reconciliation bill, and that the, the the pair then go to the president for his signature. Moderate Democrats want the infrastructure bill to be passed now, even though the reconciliation bill hasn't even been put together yet. And their threat is to not vote for the reconciliation bill, and they need all the votes on that. The the flip side is the progressives say if you if you go first with the infrastructure bill, we'll vote against the infrastructure bill. And so and they're holding each other hostage with these bills, and um, you know my my expectation is that they won't hold a vote that will allow the bill to fail. I mean that that's just not something they want to have happen. The White House seems like the key here, right? Only the White House can usually adjudicate these intra-party differences and and say, okay, we're going to put off the vote, and you, the moderates, will we'll give you X, whatever that may be. You, the progressives, need to. Understand that eventually you're going to have to vote on this thing, and and you get why, and you know they'll, they'll sort this out. But it, it really is a complicated dance, and you hear just dramatic rumors, um, and they're all over the place. So I, I can't tell you exactly what the timetable will be, or what the path to passage for, for either of those bills might look like.
0: That brings up the the you know the next topic here, which is of course the what we've been talking about, which again seems like forever in the three point. trillion reconciliation package. We got a little bit more specifics um, in the last week or so with this. The House Ways and Means Committee recently reported out its subtitles for the reconciliation bill. Uh, Our own Gordon Gray looked at the range of tax increases and tax breaks, as well as the significant spending included in these provisions from the Ways and Means Committee. Could you start with just an overview of the Ways and Means package?
1: yes so um and and i encourage everyone to to go and read gordon's piece uh it's on on the american action forum website um i'm not going to remember all the numbers and so uh the the basic structure of the of the ways and means um bill is yes to to raise all those taxes that you hear about and that's one title of of what they do but they also have jurisdiction over uh, a lot of uh, environmental policy through tax credits for production of renewables. So there's there's production tax credits for wind and solar. And and those go through ways and means Uh, they have um, some jurisdiction over uh, your transportation because there are tax credits for electric vehicles and have been for a long time. Uh, They they get those. They control a fair amount of social uh, welfare um, because we we do a lot of things through the tax code. The Earned Income Tax Credit is one of our bigger anti-poverty programs outside of Social Security, the largest. There are proposals to uh, have a, an, an expanded child tax credit. It's a big centerpiece of their effort. Uh, you know, any time you hear tax credit, you're in the Ways and Means Committee. So they've got uh, essentially a jurisdiction as large as this bill, which is uh, has uh, you know has big components of social welfare, uh, safety net. It's got education. It's got the environment and the climate stuff. It's got big tax things. It's an enormous scope as well as everything else. And and all that is in the Ways and Means Committee. So. That's what they they passed out Uh, It was a total of 10 titles. I think Uh, we've seen the details on five of them from the Joint Committee on Taxation and what Gordon hopefully points out is if you look at those five titles, they, they reduce the deficit by something like $800, 880000000000 billion, something like that. But that's not the tax increase. The tax increase is actually 2.1 trillion. So what goes on in between is uh, one. You hand out some tax reductions some tax cuts that's out there, but you also hand out some actual spending, a lot of spending. So for example, the, the child tax credit is a refundable tax credit it means if you have zero tax liability, you still get the credit you send you a check that's spending. And there's 500 billion of it for the child tax credit and a couple hundred billion elsewhere in, in, the, in the code.
0: I want to come back to the child tax credit in a moment because I think there's a, there's this confusion with it. But- Quickly on the tax changes side of things, there was two key tax changes in the package that you know we all hear a lot about, whether it be on social media or in the news, and that's increasing the top corporate tax rate to 26.5%. And then that global minimum tax that Gordon's talked about on the podcast, and you've also talked about in the podcast, what would just these changes mean for the economy, uh, and what would their in- their economic impact be?
1: So... My concern about the, this combination is, is the following. Prior to the, the 2017 Act, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, the U.S. was the last developed country clinging to a worldwide system of taxation. So our companies were taxed on their worldwide earnings. Uh, and we had the highest statutory rate in the developed world. And so they were being taxed on their worldwide earnings uh, with the highest statutory rate. And, and that meant that if a U.S. firm competed with a German firm in Brazil, the German firm paid the Brazilian tax and they were done. The U.S. firm paid the Brazilian tax and then had to pay a second layer of tax up to our top rate of 35%. That put us at a a competitive disadvantage. The way uh, the tax code was written, you didn't pay that second layer of tax until you brought the money back to the U.S. It was called deferral. So companies didn't bring the, the money back to the U.S. and we had trillions of dollars parked offshore, not coming back to the U.S. economy. And in those circumstances, if you were ever contemplating a cross-border merger or acquisition for whatever reason, if you ran the numbers, it only made sense to put the headquarters outside the U.S. And so I always remind people that the New York Stock Exchange, the iconic symbol of American capitalism, is headquartered in the Netherlands for tax purposes. And that's insane. So uh, we, we were losing headquarters of companies on a regular basis. We lost 100 of them in the decade leading up to Tax Custom Jobs Act. Since that, when we lowered the rate and reduced the worldwide taxation, we have lost zero. Uh, And and that, to me, is is what's at stake in these changes. Uh, We we are going to have the third highest rate in the OECD. That's pretty high. And we are going to be taxing worldwide. And once again, we're going to see the incentives to migrate offshore uh, return. When a headquarters goes overseas, the executives aren't hurt. It's the workers here who may lose the manufacturing plan. And and it's the economy here that loses that that investment. So I think it's very important to distinguish between the desire for more revenue and how you raise it. And And I think this is a particularly unwise way to raise the revenue.
0: Yeah. And then on the flip side, and you've already mentioned the chi- the, the this portion of it, the child tax credit, um, This it's the single largest spending proposal in the Ways and Means package. Most understandably, a lot of people assume this is a tax credit for taxes paid, um, just the way it sounds. But that there's a big change here. What's the confusion and the concern here?
1: We've had a child tax credit, which is a genuine credit and which was not refundable. Uh, So if you had no tax liability, um, you didn't get any anything out of it. It was useful if you if you owed 100 bucks and the tax credit got rid of that 100 bucks, you, you know, that was that was the advantage this version that, that is in the reconciliation bill is fully refundable so uh, everyone gets the, the money for every child it is not only fully refundable it will be sent in advance and in, in part so monthly you'll get a 300 hundred dollar check for every child and that's a big spending program that that's all there is to it um it's, it, it was 500 billion dollars in in the roughly in the in the write-up but that's for the first five years it's it, it supposedly sunsets well, they have no intention of having it sunset. Um, so this is well over a trillion dollars over ten years. It is, uh, in and of itself, an enormous undertaking. And in most Congresses, in most years, that by itself would be the big proposal, and that would be the centerpiece of the debate. Here, it's just one of many trillion-dollar items that are that are floating around. The, the other thing that, at least to my eyes, extremely bizarre about uh, this this approach is, it, the advocates will say, you know. What's someone who makes twenty-five thousand dollars and and has a, a two kids supposed to do? I mean, how how can they get by? We want to take care. Of, okay, I, I hear that argument. This uh, doesn't start phasing out until you make two hundred thousand dollars as an individual or four hundred thousand dollars as a couple. So someone making one hundred fifty thousand bucks is going to get all of the credit. That doesn't strike me as super well targeted on children in poverty. And 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 you know, th- it's among the concerns I have with this
0: seems like a lot of these pandemic relief things, you have that same thought where it's uh, or same insight where it's not very well. None of this is very well targeted.
1: None. And that was understandable in March of 2020 when speed was of the essence and targeting takes time. But if you're writing a bill that is supposed to be about the future and the structure of the social safety net in perpetuity, take the time and, and, and get it right.
0: Right, you know, I want to be fair here. So what if any changes in the tax proposal? Um, do you think are a step in the right direction?
1: I think the the, the, the most consensus will be around the um, uh, increased earned income tax credit for non custodial parents. So our, our EITC is uh, heavily weighted toward people with children. And if you have custody of the kids, and you're working, you get a much bigger EITC, it's only 400 bucks at the maximum for the others. Given that this has been a very successful program at helping people in poverty and supporting work, that strikes me as something that makes sense to do. And, and that's been on a lot of people's lists for a long time.
0: I want to talk about one other part of this reconciliation bill. Um, so let's shift gears to energy. The House Energy and Commerce Committee included in its reconciliation proposal, something called the Clean Electricity Performance Program. First, what is this trying to accomplish? And second, what are the key concerns regarding its uh, ability to meet the, these goals?
1: So if, if you step back, the, the Biden administration approach to climate is is pretty simple. It says, we're gonna have a super clean electricity sector that's run exclusively on renewables, solar, wind, um, some, some hydro, things, biomass maybe, things like that. We are then gonna ship that electricity nationwide on a grid that does not yet exist. And we will heat and cool our houses, run our factories, and drive our vehicles off that. And so that's the, that's the basic strategy. So to do that, you have to get the electricity sector to be operating on renewables. And this is about that. And, and the, the first cut at this was legislation that, that just set targets for, for utilities said, okay, in 2024, you're here. By 2026, you have to have a bigger fraction of renewables. By the time you get to 2035, you have to be 100% renewables. And you, this is just a mandate, a regulatory mandate. you got to go do it. You, you can't do a mandate in reconciliation. So that that legislation, which is not going to pass in regular order, gets put aside. And into the reconciliation bill comes the, 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 the famous uh, CEPP. And um, it says, we're going to hit those same targets. But the way we're going to do it is, if you hit it, we'll give you a reward. If you fail, we'll fine you and and then they attach sort of strange names The the you know, rewards are called grants i don't know why and the fines are called payments i'm not sure why um but that's it's the same set of objectives implemented using uh cash uh incentives for for performance so that's what it is the issues that arise are are really uh twofold one procedural is it okay to invent a new energy policy in reconciliation, the answer typically would be no. Like the provisions have to be primarily budgetary in nature. This is really about energy policy. Uses cash, that's what they're trying to, to slip in. The parliamentarian will have to rule on this. Um, I believe the right answer is this should not be included for those reasons. We'll see where what the parliamentarian decides. The second issue is substantive, which is, you know. Evelina Chapla, who, who does this work for AAF, took a look at it, and and it looks like number one, uh, it's about fourteen billion dollars a year in uh, in grants, rewards for hitting these targets. That's that's chump change in what it takes to transform the electricity uh, generation in the United States, and so it's not a very big incentive. It doesn't look like enough to move the needle uh, the way we we need to, and and the second is, they they wrote it in a way that that there's a big reward and a small penalty. And you can even take a year off and defer your participation. So she sort of works out examples where you you, you do really well and hit the target for the year, you collect 150 uh, bucks a megawatt hours, and then you take some time off and you end up back where you were and you get penalized 40 and, and you're making money and not cleaning up the, the electricity. So really doesn't seem like the way to go in terms of uh, a serious climate policy.
0: So Doug, yeah, you just preempted my last question on uh, will this make it through the Senate rules? But so it certainly seems like the Senate parliamentarian uh, has their work cut out for them. I know they already ruled on the immigration package, but it seems like they have they have a lot more to, to deal
1: with on this. I, I think that's right. And um, this is probably not the last example. Uh, it's an enormous bill. Everyone is reading it even as we speak. and. There'll be more things that jump out uh, as we go forward.
0: Right. So we'll have to have a future podcast on what actually makes it in, and uh, we'll figure it out from there. But, Doug, thanks for joining us today, and I look forward to our next chat. Great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.